Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight. I want to welcome you. Today we're going to do a whole hour of question and answer on licensing. Um, so make sure to type your questions into the chat. I see some people already have some questions in here. Um, all right. So with licensing, just to remind you guys, when you license to a, to a, your product to a company, it's their money. It's their workforce and it's their distribution. You don't need to raise funds. You don't need to file a patent. You can file a provisional patent, but the money is theirs and the work is theirs and the distribution is theirs. So you don't need to raise money and you don't need to hire employees. Okay. And we'll get into some other things too that we usually get into is, you know, you don't have to file a $10,000 patent. You can file a $75 provisional patent. I think Margie was commenting on that just now. Um, not that specifically, but we'll get into that in a second. So let's get going here, guys. Um, and then as more people show up, I'll give the legal disclaimer that we're just providing business advice. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. Um, so, and I'll say that again later. Uh, Jacob says, hi, Andrew. So I have an idea that is an improvement to an existing game. It would be a change in the theme of the design, which adds a point system to the game being the main point of difference. Okay, uh, you're, so you're changing existing board game, it sounds like, and the point system being a main point of difference. However, the structure and its um, capability is the same. Would these game structures be protected? If so, could I license the game concept to the original creator of the game? Thank you so much. I just need to click on one thing right here real quick. Click on post there, there we go. Okay, good deal. Um, so games are a different deal. If it's a, core, a card game, a board game, a dice game, unless it has new functionality and utility, most of what you're doing with um, board games, card games, dice games, is copywriting the instructions, which is actually free. Copyright is automatically given by default. You can file at the Library of Congress if you want. But um, so, the, so what you might be doing, I, I think, might be problematic, Jacob, because you're taking this existing game, and you're doing the exact same thing, but you you add a point system to it. So if you were to write the rules, the rules would be the same as this other company that's already doing it, and you'd probably be in a copyright violation. So also what I don't like about what you're doing there is that if it's only for this one company, then you only have one potential licensee. That's not very, very good. We teach our students... You, know, you want to have 20 or 30 companies and sometimes you only have eight or 12 or what have you. But if, if it's, it could only be licensed to this one other board game company, because you basically just taking their game and just changing it a little bit. Um, and you'd be violating their rules, the copy, their copyrighted rules, which is the way you protect board games, then that's a problem. So that's just on the surface. I don't know the detail of your game or what have you, but if you change the game substantially enough, you could probably license it to other companies but, um, you know, you're saying I basically I didn't do anything different with the game except, except added a point system. So, you know, is that game, has that been around forever and a day? Copyright or was the life of the author plus 100 years or something like that? So, um, you know, you might have a problem with that. So, yeah, you could license it to that company, but just saying, hey, they probably want to stick with what they're currently doing. So just on the surface from what you've let me know, I think that could be problematic. So, um, 
All right. Uh, next question is from Dan. Hi, Andrew. One question, please. If I must send the sell sheet of my product to a company, do I need firstly to ask for an NDA to be signed before I'll send it? Uh, many thanks. So um, we're not providing legal advice. Um, we're just providing general business advice. But I can tell you from a general business perspective, a non-legal perspective, um, you're going to feel like you're beating your head up against a brick wall if every company you want to send to you make them sign your NDA. I know there's probably patent attorneys and other attorneys out there are going to tell you to do that. But how many products have they licensed? Probably none. They don't know what they're talking about. So we advise our students, they don't know what they're talking about in the way of practicality of getting into companies. So, um, but if every company you try to get into, you insist they sign your NDA. Imagine this company gets 200 ideas from inventors a month, right? And every inventor has their own NDA they want the company to sign. They need a full-time attorney just to review them all to make sure you didn't put something in there that they own your company. So, because um, I've seen um, some weird NDAs and they got to read through that before they sign it, right? So what our students do is they file a provisional patent application, gives you a whole year. You can file it for $75 and then we'll, we'll get to Margie's question next. We have a solution called Smart IP. You can buy for $99 and then the patent office fee is $70. Um, and it helps you write your provisional patent application. The patent office fee is only $75. And it lets you save patent pending for an entire year. It's called a PPA or provisional patent application. So what our students do is they file a PPA and then they just you know, ask for permission. You always want to ask for permission to send it to these individuals at these companies. But if every time you ask for them to sign an NDA, now the marketing manager is like, yeah, send it over. And you're like, oh, you need to sign my NDA. They're like, oh, okay. I need to contact legal on that. And then poof, they just, they disappear on you, you know? Um, so that's the practical nature of it. I'm not giving you legal advice. If your attorney tells you to get every company to sign an NDA, then you need to decide what you want to do. But I can tell you that um, filing a provisional patent application lets you say patent pending on your sell sheet. It puts people on notice. You're creating a paper trail. Um, and I'm not saying there isn't a time for NDAs, but um, for the most part, to ask every company to sign it, it's just not practical, okay? Um, and you filed your provisional patent application. So that's your main form of protection. So Margie said, uh, hi, Andrew, I signed up for Smart IP and need to set up the 20-minute strategy session. So um, a little while back, we put on our website, if you go to inventright.com and you click on patents and then the Smart IP solution, you can dig around, you'll find it. Um, we offered, I don't think we'll be offering to do that very long, Margie. Um, where Stephen or myself are doing a quick 20-minute um, strategy session um, for folks. Uh, smart, basically, for filing your PPA. So Margie is asking me, what does she need to do to prepare? What you, I can't possibly give you any like strategy um, from, again, a business perspective, not a legal perspective, um, unless I know what your product is. So if you have a sell sheet, you got to make it really clear what your product is because 20 minutes isn't that long. And, and then I can give you some advice on, oh, well, I, I would cover this and I would cover that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I did one with a gentleman last week and it was kind of fun. And he was really missing the boat and a bunch of stuff with his mindset, but he was totally getting and soaking up what I was saying. So um, I would say, Margie, the most important thing is to uh, have a sell sheet or a picture of your product, or be able to describe your product to me really quickly. So then I can tell you what I think might be things you want to 
um, address in your PPA. Um, things you might want to think about, um, things you might want to consider when writing your provisional patent application. Again, that's not legal advice, more of a strategy session. Um, and you guys have heard me say this before, 80% of filing a good PPA is just thinking about the workarounds, variations, improvements, and including them in your PPA. And the gentleman I talked to last week and did one of these with, he wasn't thinking about it. And I got him to think about it. And now I said, don't, don't file it yet. So um, Margie, no, don't actually finish it and complete it. I will not be reviewing your PPA. I need to look at your product. And then I'll give you some general advice um, on what things you might want to consider when filing a PPA on your type of product. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Roaming Tortoise said, hey, Andrew, I've got this. Is, I read this earlier a little for a second. Um, I've got a 10 hour round, uh, round trip car ride for work tomorrow as a passenger. Uh, I just got one simple idea, and that's the, our book by our other co-founder, Stephen Key. Um, it's called One Simple Idea, and plan on reading a good amount of it. Um, I'm glad you're a passenger, because reading that, um, even if you have a Tesla or something, probably a bad idea to read while you're driving. But if you're a passenger, perfectly fine. Um, in a way, I'll be paid, be paid to read the book. Okay, well, that's cool. Um, that's a really good book, One Simple Idea. Um, it's based on... Um, Stephen's experience and Stephen and my experience in coaching and mentoring inventors for a long time. We were doing that before we did that book. Um, and it covers our 10 steps and it doesn't hold back um, on, on what to do and how to think about things. Of course, if you have a coach and they look at your particular product and they're guiding you, that's there's nothing better than that. Um, but that book will definitely lay the groundwork for the invent right approach, and it will help you tremendously. Um, let's see. Uh, somebody says, yesterday's news tomorrow. Thank you for your time, Mr. Krause. Isn't that, doesn't John Oliver have a show? It's not yesterday's news tomorrow. It's this week. I forget what it is. It, it is something play on words like that. Is it, that, Comedian John Oliver or something like that. Um, hey, Andrew. Uh, Jeremy says, hey, Andrew, how is submitting an idea to Mark Portney is different than submitting to a company? So Mark Portney is a guy that Stephen has had on, our other co-founder has had on um, our YouTube shows. And he's a, a, a small company. I think he's one business partner. And uh, they launch new products and sell them online. Um, I, I don't think it's anything any different. I think you just have a sell sheet or video. And the company that sees your product, they need to get it in six to 10 seconds. They need to get it really quickly. That's all they'll give you time for. And so when you send your marketing presentation to a company, um, it's basically not for them, it's for their customer. So if the company is doing dog toys, it would be for you know, somebody buying cat toys or dog toys or what have you. So think of it as an advertisement for their customer. No, we'll make millions or we only get 2% of the market or any of that garbage that inventors put in there. Don't ever say that stuff, by the way. Um, you know, make it a marketing piece. And essentially, it's going to be very similar to what would end up being on the packaging. You know, there's a picture of the product, benefit statements, some bullet points. Um, people have a really hard time with doing a good job of that. I see plenty of inventors do it but it's poor. And do you really want to reach out to 30 companies with a poor sell sheet or a poor video? That's just wasting your time. So um, 
but I don't see submitting to park Mark as any different. And I would say never just submit to Mark. God, submit to 20, 30 other companies as well. Um, always have a big list of potential licensees. Um, uh, William says, Andrew, the as seen on TV market channel has greatly changed. And I'm wondering if there's criteria for products that has changed. Is it possible to do an update video with All-Star or Top Dog on this? So those are two companies um, we've had on. I forget if William's a student or not um, to some of our uh, student-only webinars. Um, I I don't think anything has changed in the unless you're watching some old uh, one, videos we did for the public. Maybe that's what you're watching. Um, I think that what has changed in the DRTV space is, you know, broadcast TV is still out there. I haven't used it for eons. I mean, I got like Netflix and Hulu and AMC Plus and and this and that. And I got all these different streaming services. And I don't know who you who pays for cable television anymore. Apparently some people do. And the DRTV guys are still doing advertisements on there. But what they're doing is a lot of... Um, Online marketing. So maybe it's a product that some of them, they're all different. Um, but online marketing, maybe they're just advertising on Facebook or they're advertising on Google or they're advertising in some a social network or what have you. And they're putting their little advertisement on there. You know, um, one thing that has changed with All Star, and this is an insider thing because um, Trish from All Star came on and talked to our InventRight students only and, and said, you know, before they were kind of looking for these big one hit wonders, like like if it wasn't massive, they weren't interested. And for them, that has changed. So they want a product line. They have like Pet and then they have a couple other kitchen. They have a couple other product lines. And if you don't have a product that fits in with that product line, they're not interested. Or if unless it could be a new line. So they don't want one skew, one hit wonders anymore. It's got to fit into their line. Because what's happening to them is retailers are telling them, we want product lines like Walmart and Target and others are saying, we want lines. When we put your pet products or your kitchen gadgets here in the Asinia and TV aisle, like we want the whole line. You know, uh, we want all the pet line or maybe put a different part of the store. So I think that um, I think that they're also I, what I've noticed. I'm not just talking about All Star. I'm talking about generally DRTV. Um, they're willing to go for smaller products. You know, they before they were willing to, only wanting to go with really huge products because they can test on a smaller level and they can do advertising on Facebook or elsewhere and they can do smaller projects and then maybe go bigger. A lot of them are still doing the as seen on TV ads on TV. Um, a lot of older folks are still watching broadcast TV. So that has not died. Um, but they're not necessarily only interested in the big giant hits. They're okay with smaller hits, and a lot of them are looking for product lines. So, but everyone's going to be different, of course. So, that's a great question, William. Um, uh, Paul said, "Hi, Andrew. If a licensing agreement ends with one company, is it hard to license that product to another company, specifically in the toy and game industry? Is the process the same?" Um, so, it depends. Like, so if you license the product to a company, and um, it was wildly successful and it sold for five, eight years, whatever, however long it sold. And now they handed it back to you because they decided they aren't going to sell it anymore because maybe you, let's say there was minimum guarantees and they're not meeting those anymore. 
Is there much to do with that anymore? Maybe, maybe you could tweak the product, license it to somebody else, but the company handed it back to, in this one scenario, I'll cover some other scenarios. The company handed it back to you because the product had ran its life, you know, and that was its life cycle and it's dead. And so are you going to license that to another company? Probably not, but you could change it up. Now let's get another, do another scenario. You license it to a company and they fail to launch it all together. Well, it hasn't hit the market and they hand it back to you. They changed their mind. They got um, swallowed up by a bigger company, acquired by a larger company, decided not to launch the product. The marketing manager you licensed with is no longer there. And you know that's no big deal. They can hand it back to you. And it, the new company wouldn't be like, oh, we've already seen that. Now we're just a me too. No, that's so that's fine. Um, let's say a third scenario, um, you license it and it's very moderately successful. Um, or not very successful, and the company hands it back to you. Can you license that to another company? Yes. And you could, you know, they might have seen that it was out there. Um, and you can tell them what you think, where you think the other company faltered, and they might be willing to take it on. Um, but would I be a little less interested as a company if I saw a company tried it for a year or six months or something, and it just fell flat on its face? Um, yeah, I might be a little less interested. Um but if it's very clear that it was the company that failed and you showed it to some companies and you highlighted what the company, other company did wrong, then yeah, you could still license that. So, um, so under the licensing agreement, depending on, you know, there might be a launch date or minimum guarantees. There's so many terms in a licensing agreement that we guide our students through when we help them do deals. Um, if they didn't meet one of these criteria, Paul, uh, you, you would have the right to take it back. Usually, you know, let's say they're not doing that well. And just because the contract gives you the right to take it back doesn't mean you would. You might go, okay, and it's an opportunity to renegotiate the contract maybe. Okay, guys, things aren't working well here. Let, can we try this and try that? Can you do that? And then I can rewrite the contract. But you kind of let letting them know, like, I could pull this right now, but I don't want to. I want to give you another chance. So just because they're not meeting their contractual obligations, if you haven't talked to them about it before, give them a chance to make good on it. You know, if you believe that they're capable, sometimes they just made a false start and they try some new things and, hey, it goes great, you know. Um, so just because it says in a licensing contract you can pull it doesn't mean you don't have discussions with them about it and what they might be doing wrong or might be able to try. It was better to stay with that company, especially if you thought they were right from the get go, rather than just, you know, yelling and screaming and citing the contract and then sending them a notice. If they don't meet their contractual obligation in a licensing agreement, you can pull it. Um, usually there's a lot of details there, but usually there's a sell-off period. So if they have actually licensed the product, there's a sell-off period, which that can create problems too, because what if they decide to clearance it and it ends up at the dollar store or something? That's not looking very good for you to be able to license it again. I've literally, I don't know of a single InventRight student that's ever happened to, so I'm just making that up. Don't think that's common. Um, maybe it has, but I haven't. I don't remember a single event rights student where I ended up at the dollar store or something like that or in clearance or whatever. But so that let's say it didn't work out and now they're they're wholesaling it dirt cheap and now your new company's coming in. They might want to rebrand it or something, in which case that's just fine. Um, anyway. Uh, Brandon said, hi, Andrew, when writing a provisional, when would one want to include a method of use in addition to uh, a device. Um, you know, that's, that's, you know, I, I, you can also do a method of manufacturing 
Um, I'd say you throw everything in the kitchen sink in there that's applicable. So that's getting a little technical for this for this um, this chat. Um, let's see. KD said, I need to build a prototype because it, you know, the reason why it's technical is because it really depends without citing specific examples um, about specific products. I really can't say. Um, I need to build a prototype, but companies are charging way too much. Any trusted companies with reasonable price points? Yeah, Katie. I mean, um, we could do a virtual prototype for you. We're very affordable. But um, what I'll throw out there is what you're thinking of is maybe you think you need a prototype. And quite often you don't need a prototype. Oh, Andrew, I, I came up with an invention. I need a patent and a prototype. No, you don't need a patent. You need a $75 provisional patent. You can file yourself. You don't need a prototype. Quite often you can do a virtual prototype. Now, sometimes our, uh, for about 75 to 85% of our students that sign up with our program, we do a virtual prototype for them. And a percentage of those, good percentage of them, they have some sort of crude prototype, but it's not doesn't look good enough to put in a sell sheet. So we do a virtual prototype and maybe they got something, let's say it's a dog toy. I always use that as an example. It's like duct taped together and you're playing with your dog. And after so many times it gets all chewed up and it's falling apart, but Hey, you prove the concept. So Katie, sometimes you need to prove the concept just to see if it works. But if you can look at similar products and go, well, I know they can make it. I just can't make it. But Hey, a company won't even listen to me if they don't have a prototype. BS. That's totally not true. It's not true at all. Not remotely. Um, so a lot of times you can look at similar things and go, well, if they can make that, they can make mine. And I'm just changing a hinge on the side. So why are you going out and spending $8,000 with some company making a prototype? You know. But again, just like with Brandon's question, I can't say specifically. I've seen people are all like, you're going to need to make a prototype. Now, the vast majority of the time, I don't say that. I go, you just use a virtual prototype. It's obvious. you know. Just because you can't make it doesn't mean they can't. And look, there's somewhat similar things and yours is just a little different. And you're going to tell them that. And they're really like, oh, yeah, we got it. You know, um, then other times you might want to cobble something together with something you bought at the store with some duct tape and super glue or whatever, or a few things together. And then other times you really need to make a prototype, you know, um, but it really depends on the product. So, Katie, I statistically, I can't say because I don't know your product. Statistically, I would say the vast majority of the time, you don't need nearly as much as you think. So if you just come to conclusions that you have to have a prototype, uh, think twice on that, okay? And companies will never run for the hills if you don't have a prototype. Let's say, so let's say you show them a sell sheet with a virtual prototype like we can create for you, and it looks beautiful, and the company shows interest. And then they're like, well, do you have, you have a prototype? And you're like, no. And they're like, oh, well, forget you. You you lied to me. You, you this is this you wasted my time. Like that's I think that's subconsciously or consciously what inventors are thinking. And I've literally never ever had that happen. Now, most of the time you can work for it and that they have enough information to get some quotes overseas. Um, sometimes you need to give them more information to get that. But let's say worst case scenario, they really like it. They're like, we don't want to mess with this at all. You need to have a prototype for this. And let's and sometimes. I've had companies tell our students that, and I, I tell the student to say this certain thing back to the company because I've seen their product. And the company's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. Okay, I see how that would work now. Okay, no, we're, we're good with that. We'll go get some quotes overseas and make sure we can make this at a reasonable price. Seen that happen many times. But let's say even that didn't happen. 
And you and they said, no, no, you you got to make a prototype for us. We need to work a prototype. We're not moving forward at all, which is pretty rare, but it happens sometimes. Uh, well, at least now you have interest. But if you went and spent $8,000 on a prototype that you didn't need to make because you just could have done a virtual prototype, that, you know, people get so excited about their inventions. They they, they want to see it working, you know, and all that. But, you know, you really want to see it on store shelves. So they won't run for the hills if you don't have one. Okay. But you do need something to show and a virtual prototype is quite often the best thing to do. Um, this Thursday, we have a webinar, which is free. So if you go to inventright.com and you click on free resources, and then you find the webinar series there. Sign up for that if you're not signed up for that. And our, our one of our coaches, Les, and the other co-founder, Stephen Krause, and my Stephen, Stephen Key is our other co-founder. My name is Andrew Krause, and Les is one of our coaches. We're all going to be on talking about prototypes, so make sure to check that out. If you're not signed up for that webinar series, go to uh, inventright.com, click on free resources, and sign up for that webinar series because we're going to be talking about prototypes and virtual prototypes and all that stuff in depth for an entire hour. Um, uh, Jeremy said, can I use smart IP on multiple ideas for the one cost of $99? No, you cannot. Um, the version that our students get when they're a coaching student, yeah, they get unlimited use while they're a student and they can write as many PPAs as they want. The one on our site for the public is a one-time use. Um, so, but, you know, after doing it once, you start to get the feel for it. And you could probably do it yourself um, after that. But no, it's a one-time use for the public. And then our students, it's unlimited use um, while you're a student. Uh, Jacob said, God, so many questions about PPAs. Say I have a PPA and a contract. Say I have a PPA and a contract is in the works and we agree on an advance or for them to pay for the patent. Who creates the files and the utility patent? You always do. Always, always, always. They give you the money, but you work with your attorney to upgrade your provisional to a full, write a full utility patent and reference the provisional. Um, they, you do not want them to be filing it. You do not want it in their name. You want it in your name. And the licensing agreement gives them the right to manufacture and sell the product, not the patent. Not that the patent will be on their, their name. Um, I mean, in 22 years, maybe there's a few rare exceptions. But 99% of the time, you want it in your name, okay? Mm -hmm. Just because they're giving you the money as an advance on royalties, for example, doesn't mean it's going to be in their name. No, 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 no. Don't want that. Because if you assign it to them, it's very difficult to get it back. If it's in the licensing agreement and it stipulates that if they don't meet these criteria, you can take it back. You don't have to have the patent reassigned to you, which can be a nightmare. You, you just have to put them on notice. They haven't met their contractual obligation in the licensing agreement. And that you and that you know you you basically already have it back then. You just send them a letter. Um, let's see. Jacob says, "Say I have a PPA and the contract is in the works, and we agree on an advance for them to pay." For, okay, that was already answered. Uh, Karen said, "Hi, thanks for your efforts and generosity." Your, the InventRight's plan for licensing is great, but I feel it works for simple inventions that is prototyped and is straightforward and cheap to build. No, we've had it work for incredibly complex inventions. This one gentleman, he had eight patents on this very complex product, licensed it to a massive company. 
Um, no, it works for simple ideas. I know the title of our book is One Simple Idea. And actually, Stephen's working on a book called One Big Idea. But the 10-step system and the way we approach licensing will work with big ideas and small ideas and complex ideas and simple ideas. It doesn't matter. It does not make a difference. So you, you are incorrect there, Karen. Um, but let's let's finish the rest of your question here. I know it's the second part. What about complex inventions, for example, an engine or a vehicle? Clearly, building such items are costly and function, functionality have functionality, therefore requires years of research and fine-tuning. Oh, okay. So if you're if you're just talking about prototyping, um, the whole invent right approach still works. But yeah, you know, if you got this new engine, right? And it's for um, a lawnmower or a car or whatever. Um, you can't just do a virtual prototype on that and then talk about the benefits because when it's a really complex, highly technical solution and you're an engineer and you're capable of doing that sort of thing or God forbid you've spent hundreds of thousands with engineers to help you do it, um, on certain inventions like that, they're going to want proof. And I, I talk to what I call uh, energy inventors sometimes and they fall in a couple categories. They fall into the wacky category where you get a guy, I have a, an invention and I can run a car for a year off a liter of gas. And I could just tell by the way he's talking, this person's talking that they're nuts, right? And then I get other inventors and, and they make other inventors with energy inventions, new engines, things like that, um, look bad. So when you come to the table with a new engine, or a new solar technology or something, and it's really complex, are you going to need to prove it? Hell yeah, you are. Now, you could still get some interest and you could show them, but then they're just going to feel like you're teasing them. In that case, I, I think you really do need some sort of proof. Now, I have people that can prove it on their own with very little money and time because they're very technically advanced. And then I have others, I'm like... <laughs> you're going to need to raise like 200K just to do the testing to prove that this thing's going to work on this new engine or this new solar system or something really complex. Um, but that doesn't mean the invent right approach doesn't work. I think just the part about prototyping, yes, you do need to prove it out technologically if it's really complex like that. Because if it's just nobody's building an engine like this, there's no comparable. Now you could say, well, I just did this rotary engine, let's say. Doesn't Mazda do those rotary engines? A rotary engine, and I changed this, but they're still going to want to see it working. They're not going to want to invest tons and tons of money without you having proved it a bit, you know? Um, and then you also run the risk of coming off as one of those wacky energy inventors that are making crazy claims, which I've met a few. I mean, just people that I think are mentally ill, um, sometimes they have... they whatever they think they are the the end of the world is coming i mean maybe it is but or or that they've solved this problem or people are out to get them and one of them is like they they think they're they're elon musk or somebody and they're they talk like that and stuff and so i've met energy inventors that i've talked to and i just asked them right away what's your technical background and when they say none I have no problem with a smart farmer or somebody going, look, I have none, but I've been fixing engines for a long time and I figured this out and I'm like, great. But that's not the, the wacky one. So whenever you have an energy invention or a new engine or something technically complicated, um, you have to come um, 
to them. And this is where the coaching does work because this is what any of our coaches would say. This is what I would say. Um, if let's say a student's working on a simple product or like, Hey, I'm about working on this. And I'm like, you're, you're going to need to do more for that te- really super, super technically complicated invention that there's no comparables to. So good. Great, great comment, Karen. I love that. Um, um, maker DIY. Hey, Andrew, just wanted to say thank you to Steven and the event right team. Can't afford to be a student at the moment, but I'll make it no way. I could have gotten even this far without InventRight's amazing education. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just call you Maker since you didn't put your first name. That's really cool. Now I lost my place. I paged too far up. There we go. Um, Poppy says, can you recommend? um, Actually, it's not Poppy. It's Poppy Midnight. I love that. It's a cool name. Uh, Can you recommend a reputable company to do a 3D print on my prototype? So, guys, the, the deal with 3D prints they're very affordable these days for small parts. If you have something really huge, it's it's however much time the 3D print takes to print that object, right? And the longer, the bigger it is, and the longer it takes to print, the more expensive it is. So if you're printing like this giant, you know, wheel that would go on a car, that's pretty different than printing just this um, frame for these eyeglasses, right? But keep in mind that just because 3D printing is cheap, especially for smaller items, you have to pay somebody to design it that creates the CAD file. It turns it into something called an STL file. That's just loaded in the, into the, the, the printer, the 3D printer. So think of it as like um, you can write a book and you can print it up on your regular printer. But if you're a terrible author, it's not going to work. If you don't know how to write or if you're illiterate, you know, it's not going to work. Same thing with 3D printing. Um, You can't create a computer-aided design file that gets plugged into the 3D printer to print unless you're an engineer or understand CAD. Um, One of our our newest coaches, Keanu, um, he's licensed like 27 products. And he was an InventRight student. He just became a coach. And he didn't know CAD at all. And he learned it to design all these uh, pocket knives he's doing. He's a younger guy. I don't recommend that for most of you. Um, If you're already really technically savvy and you want to put the time in, um, but you can find people to do those CAD designs. And it's not that expensive on a simple product. But if it's a highly complex product with moving gears and stuff, that's going to be freaking expensive. So don't always think that 3D printing is the solution. Um, there's a ton of, so Poppy, you're a reputable company to print it, that they're all over the place, man. There's Shapeways. There's a ton of companies that will print it. You need a reputable engineer that won't ream you this way until Tuesday for massive costs for engineering it and designing it. You know, that's what you need. Um, but if you're just printing it, um, there's a ton of companies. It's not really key. It's almost generic. If you ask me, I'm sure some of you have printed a lot of 3d prototypes would say, no, no, this one's better than that one. And I'm sure there is, but I, I don't know which one's better than the other one. I can't comment on that poppy. Um, uh, let's see. Joe said, hi, I've been watching some of your videos and happened to click this live. Cool. I appreciate your time and value your expertise. I have a question regarding after you file a provisional patent, what's next? Okay, well, so first, 
filing a provisional should never be your first step. Studying the marketplace, looking at all the other products in the space of your invention on Google Images should be your first step. Because when you realize what is out there, you're going to change what you're going to put in your provisional. But let's say you did that research and then you, you really want to, the proper order of things, the way we teach it in InventRight, is you do your research um, and then you make your list of companies and then you make your sell sheet and then you got, and then you file your PPA. So you do your research, list the companies um, and do your sell sheet because a lot of times when you're making your sell sheet and making your list of companies, there's things you become aware of, you weren't aware of that are going to reflect what you file in your provisional patent application. So it should be the very last thing before you go public. You're not public. You're not going public with your invention before you start reaching out to potential licensees privately. Okay. It should be the very last thing. So um, let's see, let me get back. I lost my place here. Okay. So that was Joe. So Joe, make sure you did your research. Most inventors don't fully do their research. They're afraid of what they're going to find. Look at everything that's in that space. Um, you're not trying to prove nothing like your product exists. That is the wrong mindset, guys. Wrong. As a side note, a little bit. But you want to look at the invention, all the other stuff in that space. So if you have a magnetic doorstop, you know you know every magnetic doorstop that's out there and how they work and the benefits and the price points and these are these benefits and those are those and these this group over here and so forth. And they, oh, mine fits in here, right? So you need to have studied the marketplace. And then you need to make a nice big list of companies, not two or three, but 20 or 30. And our students are successful because we make them do that. Our coaches will guide them. And they're like, coach looks, you know, gives them some advice. Well, for your product, I look here and look there. And they had like two or three and they come back and the coach is like, oh, you got 18. You're doing great. It's up from two or three. And they're looking at the list and they're like, hmm, I think you missed a few here. A few here. Remember when I told you you could look for more that doing this? And they're like, oh, yeah, you did tell me that. But I did see some of those. I can do that. And now they got another 12 on their list. And now they got 30 instead of two or three or just 18. So it's like a process. Um, and we don't have a coach. You know, you you. You think you made a thorough list, but you haven't. So, um, Joe, you need to make your list of companies. You need to have a good marketing piece, sell sheet and or video, because when you're sending to companies, um, you're just sending that marketing piece that's doing all the selling for you. You need to start building your um, LinkedIn profile so you can reach out to people on LinkedIn. Um, and uh, so those are some things that I bet that you didn't do before filing your PPA because everybody wants to file their PPA first. It's not uncommon, even our people who've been watching us for a long time, and I say this all the time, and student will be on with the coach first call and say, well, I, I'm going to file my PPA first, right? And the coach is like, no, that's going to be the last thing you do before you reach out to companies. The first thing we're going to do is I'm going to make sure you stay in the marketplace. If you didn't, I'm going to tell you what to look for and go back and then go from there. Um, boys, a lot, lot of, uh, lot of questions about PPAs today. Ox, oxen. Dine, Oxendine Clan is the name, is the handle. Feel free to type your first names in, guys. That handles are fun, though. I have a provisional patent and a few prototypes. Must I just sell the product? I have some great brand brand ambassadors ready to go. Um, well, Oxendine, what we're all about here at InventRight is licensing. So when you license your product to a large company, they have 
unlimited money for a product that sells well, tons of workers, sales, marketing, manufacturing, so you need higher employees, and existing distribution in all the stores you want to be in. So you don't just sell the product and you don't need, um, you don't need ambassadors for your product whatsoever. Um, you want to license this to a big company and then receive a royalty. So you get paid a royalty for every unit that that big company sells. So, um, and you're not going to sell them your idea. You're going to rent or lease it. That's what licensing is. So you get paid quarterly every three months for every unit they sell. And it depends. I, I always joke that you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing and you're not delusional. It depends on the company though, of course. But so what I mean by that is for this company over here to sell 20,000 units a year, that's, that's what they do. They're big. That's what they do. And this one sell 50 and this one sell half a million units. Depends on the product, the price point, of course, but they're going to do whatever they do. And for them to sell huge volume, if you're picking the right companies, that's normal for them. And so that volume really adds up and then you're getting a royalty on every unit. You don't sell them your invention. You rent or lease it, which is called licensing. You're going to earn way more money over time than you ever would saying, I want to sell you my patent or sell you my invention. Never say that. That's like the biggest rookie move ever. I've been saying that a lot lately. So hopefully that's helping you guys. Because once you start saying you want to sell your patent, it just completely takes the negotiation in the wrong direction. And you guys are like, crap, I didn't know that, Andrew. But you do now. Um, so hopefully that was helpful. Um, let's see. I, I'm going to have to skip out in a bit, but I'm going to, so I'm going to kind of do a rapid fire and try to get to as many. Joe, I think I already got one from you, but I'll answer that and I can answer some of these others. Well, I'm, I might come back to yours, um, cause I already did one from you. Um, C C D says uh, CDB questions from Chris in Los Angeles. Chris is an Academy student. He's with our Academy, which is group coaching, not one-on-one -on -one coaching. Do I get coaching sessions to review my sell sheet and video, or do I need to sign up for the coaching program to get that? So if you signed up um, not that long ago, um, CD, CD, um, three coaching sessions are included with the group coaching. It's not a coaching session every week for half a year, like the, the premium coaching program. But with Academy now, we include three coaching sessions. So if you go into your membership and you log in, you'll see it's it's they're very specific. And there are things just like sell sheet and list of companies to make sure you're on track. Because before, when, we did, when it was just group coaching, we didn't include those three coaching calls. Um, we just felt like a, a lot of people were getting off track. So you do get three coaching calls um, if you want anything more than that, you need to sign up for the premium program. So make sure to log in and inside the membership site, it'll show you how to prepare for those three calls. And you need to do a fair amount of preparation so you get the most out of it. So you absolutely do get those three coaching calls. Um, uh, Ave Success said, hi, Andrew. Uh, great forum as always. Can you license a board game idea without creating a prototype? I don't think so. I think a board game game requires uh, play, and and we have um, we have a session. If you if you guys are doing board games, you want to learn more about it. We have a board game class done by a board game expert, and his name is Ed Garten. And so, if you guys are interested in that class, which is supposed to be coming up this week, I think we're going to delay one week, so we'll probably start next week. Um, but uh, email me at Andrew and Inventright if you're interested in that. But I'm going to answer your question. Um, 
you you can't sell a board game without having played it. So you do need to have played around with it. And it could be crude or what have you, but you need to do the play testing and play patterns and, and play with that board game with friends and family or something like that, you know? Um, so to have just a concept for a board game without actually playing it or know what the rules would be. And I, you didn't say you didn't know what the rules would be, but, you know, it could be a pretty simple prototype, but you need to create some sort of prototype for the board game. Then, fortunately, with a board game, you know, you just get a piece of cardboard and you could draw on it and you, you could print some graphics and put it on there. So, but yeah, you, you do need a prototype without a doubt. I can say that. Um, uh, okay. Uh, this person said they show the their name is pronounced Ulaje. Okay, Ulaje. Oh, that's kind of cool name. Um, thank you for giving me the phonetic pronunciation. I never would have gotten it. Um, new to the terminology of inventorship and business in general. If I find my invention, if, if I fund my invention via crowdfunding shares, would I still be able to receive royalties? Um, so I, I'm not a big, if you go on our YouTube channel, just go to InventRight TV. You're on there now. Don't do it right now. But if you click on the little logo and you can go and you can search for um, crowdfunding and you'll see I did a video on why I don't think crowdfunding is right for most inventors and why I think licensing is better. So make sure to watch that. Um, crowdfunding, anyway, I'm not going to go into that because I got a whole spiel. If any of you guys are interested why I think now crowd, I used to like it. I used to think it's grassroots why basically let's be dramatic crowdfunding sucks and licensing is so much better um just go to our channel InventRight tv you know you go to the main channel page and then you can do a search just in our channel so any youtube video any that we're doing you click on the InventRight logo it'll take you to the channel then there'll be a little for a little magnifying glass then search crowdfunding you'll see my video that i didn't do that long ago and it'll explain why crowdfunding sucks and licensing is so much better, but I would take up the entire rest of the time if I went into that. So hopefully that's um, helpful for all you guys. Um, Veronica said, I have an idea for an app operating system that I later want to license for other licensors to plug in there. Character IPs, could you help with that? Um, I don't know enough about what you're doing. You know, book a call with us. Um, actually, what I would do, Veronica, if you want to talk to me about the program, call the main number, go to inventright.com, call the main number um, and say, you know, uh, you, you want to do a sales call with me and I'll tell you if your product is licensable. When you get into software and apps, it's particular. And also it's it's very dependent on your background. If you've got zero background in apps and software, it doesn't sound like you do, then I recommend not doing it. If you have a background in it, then I, it's, it might be possible. It sounds like with the way you're talking that you you might have a background in that. Um, let's see, I'm going to try to get some few I didn't, uh, and then I'm going to have to hop here because I got another meeting. Um, if you guys could do me a favor, if you're not subscribed, down below, click the subscribe button. Also click the notification button because you get notified when we do these live streams. And then just like a bunch of our videos. So if you really appreciate me answering, like, your specific questions as best I can, because it's a public forum. Um, please say thank you to me and to other co-founder Steven and everybody in Right by subscribing and clicking the notification button and liking our videos and liking this video. Um, I know, isn't that weird YouTube? There's so many things to do. It's like YouTubers are like, can you do this and this and this and this? Like, oh my God, 
but I spent an hour answering questions live. That's a little different than just watching YouTube videos. So I think you guys appreciate that. Um, okay. Richard says, I spoke with Dana Knowles. Uh, Dana does sales for us. She's also a former student. She actually licensed this product right here. It's a shower caddy. It's a really simple but really cool product. There's a long, skinny shower caddy. Put shampoo, brushes, and stuff like that in there. And and she works for us now, so that's pretty cool. Um, so let me see. Uh, doo -doo -doo. Who was that? I lost my. I lost track. Oh, okay, Richard spoke with Dana. What tools are needed to start? I don't want to use up my time before the six months is up. That's the the six months of coaching. Um, gathering and learning tools like LinkedIn or video calling. Is there a prep video? Um, yeah. So what I would do is, so first of all, you could prep all day long, but you still won't have done a bunch of stuff that the coach is going to guide you to do. But um, if you want to look at products, you know, study the marketplace. If you've got several ideas, then study the marketplace for several ideas. If you have one particular idea you're working on, um, then go on Google Images and find the similar products and, and bookmark all that stuff. Put all that into an email. Show your coach you did some research. Um, that would be one thing to do. And then, and then clearly state your point of difference. So the coach can guide you to do that. But, you know, if you want to do that up front, I think that's great. Um, besides that, I don't really know what else you would prepare to do. I mean, study the marketplace is the most important thing. And they're going to guide you from there. And then they're going to hold your hand through the whole thing. So um, I would say if you could do some of that studying on Google Images, and you, if it's a consumer product, you can do it on an Amazon. Google Images is still good for even commercial industrial products, but you're not going to find as many of those on Amazon, but you will on Google images. Um, and, and have a clear point of difference. And you could start if you wanted to also um, doing a little bit of the marketing, like create a one sentence benefit statement. People really struggle with that. Create a few bullet point benefits, but have a clear point of difference. Try to figure out what that is. Um, but see, even then that can be a problem because like you might find some things and you're going to, on your own, before you sign up, come to conclusions where the coach will go, no, that's fine. Or I would just do this. So if you do find some stuff and you're concerned, um, share that with your coach, but don't make assumptions. So um, I don't think there's a lot. I would say just jump in. I mean, the coach will go forward as fast as you want to go. So if, you, if you're like most people, they have, you know, two to six hours a week. To, to spend on this. But if you're like, hey, I'm going to spend 20 because I'm in between careers or whatever. Hey, tell your coach, they'll load you up. Um, so you're not going to like lose time. You're just going to save time actually by having the coach guide you. So, but I would say do your, um, do some market research, look at all the other products in the micro category of your invention. If you have a magnetic doorstop, look at the magnetic doorstops. If you have a garlic press, look at the garlic presses, look at the other stuff that's kind of adjacent to, and that would be a good place to come in and get started with your coach. And you can just do your best job and your coach will look at it and go, well, you can still look here or there and that's fine. You know? So, um, yeah, Corey, I was going to say that too, Corey, as far as 3d printing shapeways is a very popular 3d printing. Somebody earlier had, uh, questions about where to do 3d prints. And as I commented, um, you need somebody to design it before you can print it. So that's the more critical part. The printing part is just like, just sending it to their printer, in my opinion. Um, yeah, Richard, yeah, there is a, a, vet, a veteran's discount. We do give a discount. So just call the main number if you're a vet 
and we do give a discount to veterans. So, um, okay. I can do two more minutes and then I got to go. Let's see if, um, uh, Anthony said, Hey Andrew, what does a seasonal product say summer licensing deal look like? Um, don't even think about it. You know, I mean, the, the, what it will look like is it will look like royalties come in during that time and they don't come in the winter if it's a summer product, right? If it's strictly a seasonal product and you just have to be okay with that. And then, you know, the, the royalties go down to nothing or very low and then they come back up during the summer. If it's a summer related product, it is what it is. Don't overthink it. Um, if it's a product you want to work on, just work on it, you know, and um, some of those seasonal products can sell a lot. Don't overthink about when to approach them either. Just approach them. They'll let you know every company is different. Um, if you really stay in an industry that's seasonal, you'll start to learn, oh, all these companies like to get something at this time. But before then, just send it to them. It doesn't matter when you send it, okay? Um, let's see. Uh, Antonio... Hello, Andrew. I've heard you say that LinkedIn is a great way to contact companies. How much time do you think it would take to have enough engagement to be able to do it comfortably? Um, I don't think LinkedIn is very time consuming. I think initially you got to set up your profile and then you have to start reaching out to people. And, and don't be picky. You have to build up. It's a weird like pyramid scheme. It's not a pyramid scheme, guys. But like if you connected with me, Anthony, I don't know. I forget how many contacts I have. I'm going to guess. I just, I think 12,000, something like that. Every, all those 12,000 people, because you connected with me and I'll accept any inventor into my network, are now your secondary connection. So don't hesitate to connect with some other inventors and people you know, people you don't know. I mean, I had a guy this morning, hey, Andrew, I saw this guy on your LinkedIn. Can you introduce me to him? And I'm like, I don't know him. I have 12,000 people on my LinkedIn. That introduction won't make any sense for me, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, just I don't think it's that I think if you just pick up the phone and you're reaching out to companies, then it's just like, boom. Right. And LinkedIn is more a little bit more work up front, set up your profile and everything. But, man, you could just message people at 2 a.m. in the morning whenever, you know, in your car, sitting on your phone, you could message somebody or you open outside ideas or what have you. So so I really recommend that everybody gets on LinkedIn. I got to go, guys. I'm sorry. I didn't get to everybody's question. If you guys, I do this every Monday. So if you're like, hey, Andrew, you didn't get to my question. It's like, I can't get to them all. But if you show up early enough, I get to all the people that show up earlier. And I remind you guys to take care, keep inventing. Please do us a solid down below. Um, click subscribe, click the notification button. Give us thumbs up on all the videos, including this one. And uh, check out our free resources. Go to inventright.com, click on the free resources, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. See you guys. Bye.